Well, hey there, and welcome to our Sermon Audio Podcast from Mountain View Christian Center, a place to connect. Well, good morning. How about better than that? Good resurrection morning. I mean, it is that day, right? This is a... Come on, we can, we can be a little bit, just a little bit excited. I mean, this is, this is Easter Sunday, right? There's, there's an empty grave out there. I mean, you think about it, think about it. If it weren't for Easter, Christmas wouldn't matter. But we got to be fair and balanced. I mean, if it weren't for Christmas, Easter couldn't have happened. Jesus had to come. And you know what else is important is all those years in between. We, there's, there's a lot of years we don't hear an awful lot about Jesus. You know, we, we, we get a big introduction to him, and then we hear nothing until he's 12 years old, and mom and dad lose him. So if you've ever lost your kids in the grocery store or forgotten to take them home from church, Please don't do that. I don't need any more kids. I've, I, mean, I love your kids. I just don't need any more myself. And they seem to find their way over to the parsonage. So, But if you've ever felt bad about losing your kid, imagine being Mary and Joseph, Jesus' mom and stepdad, and losing the Son of God. That's a little intimidating. But then after that, after he's 12 years old, we don't hear anything until he's 30. And then we hear about three, three and a half years of ministry until he's crucified. So there's all these years that there's not an awful lot said, but you need to know that each and every one of those days in each and every one of those years was important. Jesus came to earth, fulfilled prophecy, showed up born of a virgin. The whole Christmas story survived the the tirade of the king at the time. You know, mom and dad listened to an angel and packed up and took off, and and he survived, and they raised him then in a small backwater town. How many of you know that God loves small towns and people in small towns? Amen. Even people that don't talk right. Amen. I mean, Nazareth had had a reputation of being a place where they didn't even talk right. So when I hear that, I think... God loves me. (laughs) But then every single day of his life, he lived like you and me. I mean, he lived a human experience. He was 100% human. And the Bible tells us that he faced every single temptation that you and I face and every single thing that, that you and I have to learn from being potty trained and learning how to walk and talk. He had to learn. He had to deal with falling down and skinning his knees. He, his stepdad was a carpenter, and so he worked as a carpenter. I can guarantee you he got splinters in his fingers. I'm sure he probably cut himself a time or two. He was human. When he became a teenager, we don't even like to talk about this because this is Jesus. But understand this, parents of teenagers and those of you that can remember your own teenage years, when Jesus was a teenager, he went through puberty, and he went through all the... The, the things that you and I go through, and yet was without sin. And that's important. It's important for us to understand that in all of that, in every way that you and I failed, because we've all failed, right? 
Every single one of us, that's a common bond that we all have. He was tempted, but he didn't fail. That's why during that Passover festival, on that Good Friday, he was able to be a perfect sacrifice, taking your place and my place on that cross. This morning, I'm taking a little bit different direction with the Easter message, and it's not going to be a typical Easter message. Some of you might walk away from here or hear me start up and go, well, well, what about the cross? And what about the grave? And what about the empty tomb? And what about... Those are all good things. Those are all good things. Extremely important. But, you know, when you look at the who, what, where, when, and why... We've got who, don't we? Jesus. That's what it's all about. What? His crucifixion and his resurrection. Because if he would have been crucified but didn't rise again from the dead, he wouldn't be any different than anybody else been killed. He wouldn't be any different than any other spiritual leader who lies in their grave dead today. But the fact of the matter is that Jesus did rise again. Sets him apart from everybody else and gives us a living hope. So that's the who and the what. The where, Jerusalem, Golgotha, the when, Passover feast, some 2,000 years ago. But what's really important in all of that, and what I want you to go away from here today understanding, is the why. The why is you, and the why is me. Why did he do what he did for you and for me? Why did he go to the cross? For you and for me. Why did he rise again? For you and for me. So we're going to take a look at the why, and as we take a look at the why, I'm going to focus on the prayers of Jesus. I'm going to start a new series starting today. We're going to start a series titled Pray Like Jesus. We're going to look at how he prayed these last couple of days before his death and then after his resurrection. But before we get into the word, if you have your Bibles, would you hold them up? Just humor me in this. You know the drill. Repeat after me. This is the word of God. It's able to make me wise. It's useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. And this message is for me. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your great love for us today. Thank you for sending your son to this world so many years ago to grow and live among us, to die for us, and to rise again, defeating death forever. Lord, this morning I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. And again, I ask that your Holy Spirit go where I can't go, to the very heart of each and every one of us. Lord, change us and transform us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So go ahead and take those Bibles and open them up to John chapter 17. John chapter 17, we're going to start reading in verse 6. As you go there, though, 
I just want to remind you the most powerful, or maybe make you aware that the most powerful of Jesus' recorded prayers took place near the time of his crucifixion. In fact, this prayer that he prayed, he prayed on the night that he was betrayed. This is just before they went into the garden and he sweated drops of blood. This is just before he was arrested. This is how he prayed. Let's take a look, starting in verse 6. Jesus speaking to the Father, he says, I have revealed you, revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you, for I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, they're yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name that you gave me. None has been lost except, to, uh, except the one doomed to destruction, so the scripture would be fulfilled. I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. And my prayer is not that you would take them out of the world, but that you would protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Verse 20, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I and them, you and me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those that you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you've given me, because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, through the, though the world does not know you, I know you and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love that you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. That's a mouthful. It's a fairly long prayer, but it's a pretty powerful prayer when you break it down. And I want to talk about this. I want to, I'm going to bring out a few things. I want to highlight a few things. But you know, sometimes we get intimidated by that word prayer. And I want to put your minds at ease. Prayer is not intimidating. Prayer is simply communication with God. Prayer is communication with God. And it's not just talking to God, but it's also listening to Him. We don't like those one-way conversations, do we? We have enough of that when we raise teenagers. It's a, it seems like it's just a monologue. We're standing there telling them the same thing over and over and over again. We want some interaction. Talk to me. 
We want interaction in our relationships with our, with our spouse and our loved ones. We, we want to know what's on their hearts, what's on their minds. That's what communication is, talking and listening. We need it. Do you know that, that failure to communicate is the number one cause of divorce in this country? Probably in the world, but in this country, number one cause for divorce is a failure of communication or lack of communication. Oh, there's other things that, that get highlighted, money issues and intimacy issues and things like that. But the bottom line, if, if we would learn to communicate about those issues, if we would learn to communicate, we could do better. And, and here's the sad truth of the matter. When we fail to communicate in our relationships, our relationships fail. Now, if that's true when it comes to a relationship between a, a husband and a wife, when we fail to communicate in that relationship, that relationship fails. If that's true in that relationship, how much more true is it in our relationship with God? We need to learn to communicate with God. But again, not just telling him what you want. He's not some genie in a bottle that you rub and get three wishes. It's not, not some deal where you put some coins in some you know, heavenly slot machine and it comes up cherries and you get to ask God for whatever you want. We need to learn to communicate with him. Share with him about your life. Let's not, you know, I don't even care if you get rid of the word pray and, and insert talk. Talk to God. There's a thought. Listen to God. It's an even better thought. A lot of us are really good about talking to God. We tell him everything. We tell him everything we want. We tell him everything we're not happy with. We complain about the way everything's going. And then we say, all right, goodbye, great time, thanks. And walk out the door while he's sitting going, I, yeah, but I, I did that. Don't stop God. You don't know how much you cheat yourself when you stop listening to God. So, Learn to pray, learn to talk, learn to communicate with God, learn to listen to him. And Jesus demonstrated this. Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus, God in the flesh, still communicated with his Father. He talked to him that his relationship would not fail. Is it any wonder, since, lack, since failure in communication causes failure in relationships, is it any wonder then that the enemy of our soul works so hard to disrupt our communication with God. Think about it. how many times you decide, I'm going to sit down, I'm going to spend some time praying, and then the kids come running in, or the phone rings, or your favorite song comes on the radio, or, or some dummy decides to hit their brakes when they're right in front of you, or pull right in. Now, I will say this. I, I think it's really good to pray while you're driving. Just keep your eyes open. It's okay to pray with your eyes open, especially if you're behind the wheel. But how many times do we decide, hey, I'm going to spend some time with the Lord, and everything comes up that normally wouldn't come up? Sometimes we got to be really, you know, we have to be intentional about our communication with God. You might have to turn your phone off, turn your radio off, go into your room, maybe go into your closet. Jesus talked about going into a prayer closet. We got to do that. When Deb and I were dating, uh, this is this is back in the olden days before there was cell phones and computers and all this stuff. This is, you know, it wasn't quite so far back that we were riding horses and sending telegrams. 
kind of in between. But we had to we had to communicate. If we wanted to talk to each other throughout the week, because I was stationed at Fort Dix in New Jersey, and she lived in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, two and a half hours one way in a 67 Camaro with a 327. Now, that's, that's a long ways. And if we wanted to communicate through the week, either we were going to write letters, which, you know, you really don't get to talk back on a letter, or we would have to decide what time we were going to call. Well, I'll call you at 9 o'clock or whatever. i tell you what. I didn't know this at first, but if I would have missed that time, she probably wouldn't be Mrs. Hollis right now. She was really adamant about it. I had to be on time. I had to be timely. That was, that was an important thing. But, you know, how many times when I was getting ready to go and call her, did things try and pop up to distract me from calling her? But you know what? I got this really good-looking girl two and a half hours away, and nothing's going to stop me from getting to that phone. Come hell or high water, I am getting to that phone, and I am making that phone call. Amen? Some of you guys can, you can relate to that. Some of you that are you know, my age or older, the olden days, you're going to make it happen. We need that same kind of grit, that same kind of determination when it comes to talking with God, communicating with Don't let anything get in the way. Let me move off of this so we can get on with the rest of the message. I'm going to break down Jesus' prayer into a few points. We just read verses 6 through 26. I want to highlight a couple of things. First of all, he was praying for his disciples. He was not here praying for himself. He was lifting up his disciples, those who had accepted him, those who were following him, those who were disciplining their lives to be like him. There's a couple of words that in my Bible I highlighted. So I thought these are, these are key words that we need to we need to grab hold of here. Jesus mentioned them in verses 6, verse 8. They obeyed him. That's a pretty important thing. If you want to call yourself a Christian, it's pretty important for you to obey Christ. If you're not going to obey him, you might as well just hang it up. They had accepted him, which really probably should have come before the obey part, but they accepted him. They, they said, you know what? I believe that you are the Christ. You are the Son of God. I've received you not just, not just into a buddy-buddy relationship, but as my Savior, as my King, as my Lord, as my boss, if you will. They accepted and they believed Him. They didn't simply believe in Him, but they believed Him. Why? Because when he said he was going to do something, he did it. They chose to believe. That's important, and, and this might be a really good time of year to stress this. It's important to understand the idea of believe. Because you can believe in something, and it won't make a pile of difference. You could, you could believe in the Easter Bunny, not going to make much difference. You can even believe in Jesus, and it won't make a pile of difference for you. And here's a sad fact. There's going to be a lot of people that believe in Jesus that spend eternity in hell. My goodness, James, the writer of James, says this, you believe 
that there's one God? Great! So do the demons. And they tremble. Their belief goes beyond just an acknowledgement, oh yeah, he exists. It freaks the devil out to think about Jesus. It scares the pants off demons. I don't even know if they wear pants, but if they wore pants, it scares the pants off of demons to realize that God is alive and well. They tremble just thinking about it. Church, we need to go beyond this, this belief in his mere existence to a belief that says, yes, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to accept you. I'm going to believe you. I'm going to trust you for my salvation. I'm going to put my faith, my future, my hope on this. I think my favorite, I don't know if I've ever shared it, but my favorite, my favorite illustration I can give for the difference between believing in or believing on with that, that sense of faith. When I was uh, 18 years old, I had just graduated high school. I went skydiving. Anybody else skydive? My daughter skydived. A few of you. Awesome, isn't it? It's, it's a kick in the pants. It's awesome. So I go up there and, and we sit through this, uh, you know, it's like, it's like an eight-hour deal drive up there, me and a buddy of mine, he was my Sunday school teacher. We got a two for one. It's really not important, but we, we get, and, and we're driving up and I'm seeing these guys jump out of airplanes and I'm seeing the parachutes. And you know what? I, I believe. I believe in parachutes. I believe in skydiving. I see it. It's great. We go through this class and they tell us everything that we need to know about what you don't want to know about if your chute doesn't open. But they got to tell you. Because it's possible it could happen. And I'm looking, I'm still watching, and you know what? I believe. And so I go and I got my boots on, I got my helmet on, and they strap a parachute on me. And I've got this parachute on me. I can feel it. I believe in parachutes. And then they line us up, they put three of us in this plane, and then the jump master and the pilot, and they, uh, for whatever, well, I know what the reason was. They, they put you in according to size, the smallest person first. They go back to the, to the end of the airplane, then the next smallest, and then the largest person, because the largest person has to be the first person out of the plane. There's this thing with gravity, and they don't want a big person falling on a smaller person. It, would, it, it could ruin both their days. Guess who was the biggest person? It was me. So this, this young gal, she climbs, she's the smallest, she climbs in. And then my buddy Richard, who had been my Sunday school teacher, he's an adult man, I'm only 18. He's smaller than me, and he goes in second, and I'm first. And we get up, you know, you, you're, you get in these little planes, you're going down the field, and, and they're trying to lift, they finally get off the ground. And they start doing this so they can spiral up, so they can get high enough, and everything's getting smaller and smaller. And they're, they're yelling back and forth. Are you excited? Oh, yes! <laughs> and then the time comes. We're up high enough, and I see the little target down there. There's a little guy running around. He's holding an arrow. They say, whatever way you see that arrow going, that's the way you want to point. You steer your chute. And I'm like, awesome, great. I can see him. That's good. They open the door, they're doing 75 miles an hour. How many of you stick your head out the window at 75 miles an hour? They open the door. All right, first up, you're going to sit on the edge, you're going to stick your feet out this door, you're going to put your foot on the little peg down there, you're going to grab the bar underneath the wing, 
You're going to climb out and you're going to hang. You're going to hang underneath the wing. While you're hanging underneath the wing, I want you to turn and look at me. I'm going to take a picture. I want you to smile for the picture. When you see me wave, you let go. Awesome. Looking forward to this. So the door opens. I stick my foot out and goes, whoa. And I scoot forward. That's a long ways down. And he says, go on out. So I go to put my foot on the little peg and reach up, and my foot misses the peg. (laughs) But I've got lightning quick cat light reflexes, so I kind of kick off, and I grab that bar. (laughs) This isn't how I planned it. And now I'm hanging on there with a parachute on my back. I've seen the parachute. I believe in parachutes because I saw people, and I put it on. And I turn and look at the guy. He says, smile. I am smiling. And then he waves. Now I had a choice. I could either fight my way back into the plane. And say, that was really cool. Or I could let go and actually believe on a parachute. Actually put my faith in what I can't see anymore because it's on my back. And I wanted the thrill of, of riding down on the wind, but I had to put all my trust into something that I couldn't see. I'd seen other people do it and it worked for them, but sometimes it makes a difference when you're the one hanging outside of an airplane 1,800 feet, 75 miles an hour. Because no longer is it them that might go splat, it's you. Do I believe? Yeah. It's that moment that I let go that I truly believed. You kind of wonder what's going on until you feel the chute open up. It's It's an amazing, crazy feeling. But that's the best way that I can describe the difference between believing in Jesus' existence, just believing that he's there and actually having a saving faith, a belief that says, you know what? The only thing between me and a really, really bad eternity is Jesus. There is no other name that's been given under heaven by which we might be saved. There's no other way. I can't earn it. I can't buy my way in. I can't give my way in. I There's going to be a whole lot of good people in hell because they gave and gave and gave and gave more generous, but they didn't believe on Jesus and trust him. Don't let that be you. Be one who believes and trusts. That's who Jesus was praying for here. In fact, in verse 9, he says that he's not, he gets specific, he says, I'm not praying for the world. I'm not praying for the lost right now. I'm praying for those who know me. I'm praying for my disciples. I'm praying for those who will come to know me as a result of their testimony. So he prays for his, for his disciples. Now, I got, there used to be a, a credit card company out there that their ad said something about membership has its benefits. Anybody remember that? Membership has, I tell you what, membership in the family of God has its benefits. Got Jesus praying for me before he goes to the cross. Jesus taking time out 
Say, Father, this is important. I want to pray for my disciples. Membership has its benefits. So what does he pray? He prays a few things. First of all, he prays protection. He says, protect them. Verse 11, protect them. He goes on to say that he protected them while he was in the flesh, while he walked with them. He protected them by his name and by his presence. But now he was leaving. He wasn't going to be walking the earth anymore. He was going back to heaven to be with the Father. And since I'm not going to be there, Dad, I need you to protect them. They're still going to need protection. He promised that he wouldn't leave us as orphans. John chapter 14, verse 18, he says he won't leave us as orphans. He sent his Holy Spirit. But even before that, he's praying that the Father would protect us. How many of you have seen the movie uh, Bucket List? Jack Nicholson and, and uh, Morgan Freeman. And there's a scene in there It makes me think of this when, when Jesus is talking about protect them. Remember the scene? They're sitting up on top of the, of the pyramids and they start talking kind of serious. And we find out Jack Nicholson had a, had a daughter and they had a falling out. They had a falling out. He wasn't invited to the wedding and because he didn't approve of the man. And he said, you know, he, he intervened the you know, first time he hit her. Morgan Freeman looks at him. He's thinking about how's a father deal with this? He says, what'd you, what'd you do? Jack Nicholson looks at him in that, in that look that only he can give, that voice. And he says, I called a guy who called a guy who takes care of these kinds of things. That's what Jesus was doing there. He knew he was sending us into a a difficult place, into a dangerous spot. Jesus said, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. That's dangerous. Being a believer is not for the faint of heart. I'm sending you into a dangerous place. They hate me. They're getting ready to crucify me. Guess what? They're going to hate you. Dad, I'm calling on one who takes care of these things because I love them like my son, like my daughter, like my brother, like my sister. I love him. Calling a guy who takes care of these kinds of things. When Queen Esther in the Old Testament, the book that bears her name, when, when she was faced with the opportunity to speak up for her people and potentially die, Her uncle Mordecai had raised her and came to her and said, look, there is this this awful plan afoot to wipe out all the Jews. And don't think that you're going to escape just because you're the queen. But you know what? The queen at that time couldn't just approach the king. She had to be sought after. She could go in and and make her presence known. And if he tipped the scepter towards her, she could come in. But if he didn't tip the scepter towards her, it was death, even to the queen. And she was a little bit nervous about that. Mordecai speaks up and says, you know what? You don't know, but for such a time as this, were you born? And if you don't step up now, if you don't step out in faith, if you don't do what you can now, understand this, salvation will come for the Jews through somebody else. But now is your time to shine. And she said this as she looked at him. She says, okay, I'll tell you what. You go and collect all the Jews that you can find. You get them to pray and to fast. And I'm going to do the same thing with my maids in here. We're going to pray and fast for three days, and then I'll go. And she says, if I die, I die. 
She was ready to face death, just like Jesus facing death, ready to face death. But she says, pray. Pray first. Pray because prayer makes a difference. Pray because I need that strength. Pray and I'll go. It's interesting to me that God sees things a little bit different than we do. The Bible says that his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Even the way that we view safety is different than the way that he views safety. Did you notice in there, in fact, in verse 15, Jesus specifically didn't ask the Father that he would take us out of the world or remove us from the danger zone, but rather that he would protect us in the danger zone. I don't know about you, but the way I see protection is like, get me as far away from that danger as possible. But Jesus cruising around with his disciples, he would take them right into storms. He knew storms were coming. Let's go get in the storm. He knew people were coming to kill him. Let's go. And he speaks to the Father, and he says, protect them. But I'm not asking you to take them out of the world. I'm not asking you to move them away from the danger zone. I'm asking you to be with them, to protect them in the midst of the danger zone. I think we miss out on a lot of the blessing that God has for us, a lot of the experiences and the, and the protection that he desires to give us when we start putting down rules and regulations for God. Okay, God, I'll go everywhere you want me to go as long as it's safe and I have a bulletproof vest. God, I'll do, I'll do your will anywhere you want me to as long as it's within these parameters and there's no bad guys near me, as long as I can have all sorts of friends. Because you know what? Being a Christian, being in ministry ought to result in friends. Doesn't always. Not always. Let me tell you something. You are never going to be in a safer spot than being right in the center of God's will. And I'll go so far as to say this. As long as I'm walking in the center of God's will, I'm invincible until the Lord wants to take me home. That does not mean I'll never get hurt. There are those here that are aware that I, on occasion, see surgeons, physical therapists, pharmacists, whatever. Doesn't mean I'm never going to get hurt, but it means that you ain't going to kill me. You're not going to stop me. If I'm walking in the will of God, you cannot stop me. We all need to grab onto that kind of a mindset. Again, Jesus said, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Now, here's the caveat. The point of protection, as Jesus prayed, wasn't just for safekeeping. How I many of you know Jesus has a purpose in what he does? He had a purpose in his prayer. He had a purpose in praying for safety, but his prayer for safety wasn't just that you would have a comfortable night's sleep. Look at what he says in verse 11. That they might be one. His purpose for your safety, his purpose for the Father protecting you isn't just that you'd sleep good at night, but that you and me and every other person who calls Jesus Christ Lord would be united. That there would be a unity in this service to the Father. This is the second thing that he prayed. 
Unify them. Verses 11, verse 21, and verse 23, he speaks a lot about unity and about unifying them. There's power in unity. There's power in strength. That's probably why ladies all go to the bathroom together. There's, I don't know. Strength, power, unity, I don't know. There's enough out there, though, to divide us. We need to start concentrating on the things that unite us. The gospel message is one of unity. I love sitting down and talking. I've got, I've got friends that are pastors in other churches, other denominations, other tribes, whatever you want to call it, whatever the common term is. And I love being able to sit down and, and know that there are things that we don't agree on. There's things that we see differently. But being able to say, you know what, that stuff doesn't really matter. What matters is this. There is one God. He sent a son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for me and rose again. That if I might accept Jesus Christ, I can be forgiven of my sins. No other name. I tell you what. We can work out all the other little stuff. We should stop letting this dumb stuff divide us and start focusing on the things that unite us. The enemy works really hard to divide us. How many times have you heard somebody say, well, if there's only one God, why is there so many churches? Because we oftentimes have forgotten about unity. I'm not talking about universalism. I'm not talking about buying into everything that everybody else is selling. I'm just talking about, you know what? If it's in here, if it's between these covers, if you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and it's through Him and Him alone that we have salvation, then you know what? we got something in common, and let's build on that. That's what Jesus was praying for, a unity that's going to stand against everything that would try to divide us. Ecclesiastes 4.12 says this, a cord of three strands is not easily broken. What's that? It's a call for unity. We're stronger together than we are apart. So he works and prays for unity while Satan works hard against this unity. It's high time that we begin working on the unity that Jesus himself was praying for. Because we got our responsibility. You know, I mean, God does his part, we got to do our part. We're not just put here to float along and go, oh, yeah, that's cool. We got to put our hand to the plow and got to do our part. Next, verse 17. He prayed that the Father would sanctify them or sanctify us. To sanctify means to purify from sin. Now, Jesus was about to die on the cross and pay the price for our sin, but we, his people, would still need to be set apart from sin. So it's not enough just to have the forgiveness, just to have the soap hanging on the, I almost said soap on the rope, have the soap sitting on the, on the counter in the tub that we can pick it up and use, but we actually have to pick it up and apply it to our lives. Jesus paid the price. But until we ask him to apply it to our lives, it doesn't do us any good. We need to be sanctified, and then we need to separate ourselves away from that sin. It's an ongoing process. You get saved, you don't just stop sinning. You get saved, you don't just stop being tempted. We gotta, but we got to be sanctified, and, and Jesus was asking the Father, sanctify them, separate them from the sin, purify them from the sin. It gets really frustrating whether you're, whether you're raising pets or you're raising kids. Sometimes they, they act the same and they smell the same. 
And it gets really frustrating sometimes to pick them up when they're all dirty and you clean them off, you give them a bath and you get them out of the tub and you let them go. And what do they do? They run right back and get back into that mud hole. They run right back out and just get all covered. In ah! Jesus feels the same kind of frustrations. Look, I paid the price. I cleaned you up. Now stay clean. Be sanctified. Separate yourself from the sin. Quit going back to it. Going, don't go jumping back in that muck pile. And so Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them, purify them from sin, free them from sin, break the power of sin in their lives. We don't have to be addicted to it anymore. Next, verse 13. I got these a little out of order. Verse 13, let them have the full measure of joy. Isn't this cool? Jesus praying for you to have joy on the night that he's betrayed, on the night that he's going to start getting beaten, just before he gets hung on a cross, his concern for you is that you would have joy. And not just a little bit of joy, he says the full measure of joy. As much joy as possible to have, that's what Jesus wants you to have. John chapter 10, verse 10 he said, I, can, I have come that you might have life and have it to the full, have it abundantly, have a satisfying life, have a joyful life, have an exciting life, have a thrilling life. That's what he came for. And now he's praying, Lord, I want them, Father, I want them to have the full measure of joy. I don't want them to be sourpuss sallies. I don't want them to be moping around and be bummed. I tell you what, if I couldn't have fun, as a Christian, which seems to be a prevailing attitude out there, once you get, you know, once you become a Christian, you become all, maybe that's the difference. They talk about becoming religious, and I'm just talking about having a relationship with Jesus. Once you become a Christian, you got to fold your hands and cross your legs and, and just sit around and be a very boring person. That's just the way it is. My goodness, if that was the truth, I wouldn't have signed up for it. And I thought for a long time that that's the way preachers were supposed to be. Preachers got to be boring. That's why I, I didn't want to be a preacher. They're boring. They're not, they're not cool. They're not fun. I'm, I'm so glad I was wrong. I'm not saying I'm cool, but I have fun. Was that an amen that I'm not cool? Yes, sir. <laughs> I'm going to mark that down. Yes, I have fun. We should all have fun. We should have joy in our lives. And joy is just an abundance. It's, fun results from joy. It's not the other way around. I can have joy when I'm having a bad day. Why? Because it's not the end of me. I can have joy when the economy's crashing. Why? Because it, it's not the end of me. My God is my provider. I can have joy when I'm not feeling too good. It comes and goes and spurts when I'm not feeling too good. But I can have joy anyway. Jesus didn't save me to give me a miserable life. He saved me to have fun. He, he prayed, give him the full measure. And you know how he measures stuff? Press down, running over. That's the kind of joy he wants you to have. That's the kind of joy he wants me to have. By golly, that's the kind of joy I'm just determined to live in. Amen? He paid the price for it. Don't leave it sitting on the table. He doesn't want you to have just a little joy. He wants the full measure of joy for you. In Matthew chapter 25, he told a parable about some stewards. You know, a guy, a wealthy man going off on business, and he brought his servants in, and he gave them a little bit of money. Each told them to put it to work, and the first one put it to work and doubled it. Second one put it to work and doubled it. Third one put it, didn't put it to work. He hid it. 
That guy got rebuked when the master got back, but the other two, they heard the same thing. They heard, well done, you good and faithful servant. Now, come and enjoy your master's happiness. Dude, enjoy your master's happiness. That's what I want. But we got to be good, faithful servants. Let's move along. Oh, I got like, I've only got like 20 minutes left. <laughs> you know, it's really funny. You think I'm joking. Uh, and so these are the things that he prayed before he went out to the garden. This is the stuff he, he was praying for us as he's getting ready to face the worst night in the history of the world. This is what he's praying for us. He finally, in Mark chapter 14, you can flip there if you would, if you would, if you would like. Mark chapter 14 chronicles his prayer in the garden. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time developing that. Let's just read it quickly. Mark 14, starting in verse 13, uh, 32. Mark 14, 32. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. Verse 34, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. This is him talking. I mean, this is reality is, is setting in. Jesus is saying, I am so distressed, I, I, I could die. He says, stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Here he's finally praying for himself. And listen to how he prays. He says, Abba, which is Greek for daddy. Father, he says, everything is possible for you. This is a declaration. He knows that his father can do anything. There is nothing that is beyond his capability. Everything is possible. With that in mind, take this cup from me. Jesus didn't want to go to the cross. He didn't want to experience the pain. And he knew that his father absolutely could keep him from it. That's why he said, it's possible. Everything's possible. But he finished up that prayer with, Yet not what I will, but yours. See, when he got around to praying for himself, he still wanted to put the Father's will in the forefront. I know you can do all these things. And here's the truth, Dad, I don't want to do this. But if I don't, our plan's not going to succeed. So not my will. Dad, I take my will I take my desires and I'm laying them down right here. Not mine, yours. How could he say that? Because he knew the Father, because he trusted the Father, because he was united with the Father, because he sanctified himself. Start praying for ourselves. We need to start praying that way. Lord, I know you can, but what I want is your will. And he comes back and he Approaches the disciples. This happened three times. They, they would fall asleep. He'd go away and pray for an hour, and they'd fall asleep. So we know he was saying something a little bit more than what Mark records here. He'd come back, and, he fall, and, they, were, and they had fallen asleep. And he woke them up at one point, and he said this. He said, guys, you need to wake up and pray that you don't fall into temptation. 
Because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And I've heard people use that phrase, they quote Jesus, you know, the spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. As if that gives them excuse to go out and do something stupid. Well, Jesus said the spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. You know, my spirit really wants to do the right thing, but my flesh is so stinking weak, I think I'm just going to go over here. Jesus said it. That's not what Jesus meant. He said, you need to understand you're weak. You need to understand you got problems. Your spirit inside you wants to do the right thing because I birthed that in you. But just having that desire isn't enough. You need to pray that you don't fall into temptation. Oh, I don't get a pass because I've got weak flesh. In fact, it's actually a point of accountability. Jesus is saying, I know and you know. Now, maybe you ought to start communicating with my father about that. I'm going back to pray. And that was the last of the prayers. So after that, Jesus comes back and says, hey, get up. My accusers are here. Get up. It's time for darkness to reign. Get up. Judas came, gave him a kiss, betrayed him. Soldiers came with swords and clubs and spears to arrest him. Peter pulls out his sword. He's not a very good swordsman. He cuts the slave's ear off. I don't think that was part of the plan. He's probably trying to take his head. He gets his ear. Jesus looks at us and knock it off. Grabs the ear of the servant who was there to arrest Jesus grabs the ear and puts it back on. Heals the man that's there to kill him. Takes him, arrests him. Jesus goes through the trials. He gets beaten. He hangs on the cross. Father, forgive him. They don't know what they're doing. Last prayer on the cross. It is finished. Sky goes black. Earthquake hits. Temple curtain is torn. They take Jesus down. They lay him in a tomb, a borrowed tomb, because he wasn't staying there very long. That was Friday. Sunday's coming. Things look pretty bleak on Friday. All Jesus' disciples, all his followers are scattered out and scared and bummed. Saturday is a special Sabbath. They couldn't do any work. Sunday, the ladies go to anoint his body for burial. They still didn't get it. They got there and the tomb was open. They didn't find Jesus. They found an angel saying, hey, why are you looking for the living among the dead? Jesus isn't here. He did what he said he was going to do. He's alive. He's alive. That's a little better. Should I try a third time? He's alive. And he appears to the women, then he appears to his disciples, and over the next 40 days, he appears alive and well, eating, breathing, talking, blessing over 500 people at one time. 
until he goes up on the Mount of Olives, takes his disciples with him, raises his hands, blesses them, and he is taken into heaven. And all his disciples stand there going, whoa. Stand there for who knows how long, long enough that the angels got tired of waiting. Because the angels finally tapped him on the shoulder. So why, why are you standing here looking in the sky? Because the same Jesus that just went away is going to come back the same way that he left. He's coming back. Yeah, his, his resurrection wasn't the end. He's coming back. But let me say all that to say this. Jesus hasn't stopped praying for you. And he hasn't stopped praying for me. This was a habit of his. Let's go to Hebrews. We'll finish up this last, this last verse. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. says this. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, talking about Jesus, because, and this is what I want you to catch, you might highlight this, underline it, he always lives to intercede for them, you. Jesus, since he ascended into heaven, has been standing at the right hand of the Father, talking to the Father, praying, if you will, interceding for you and for me every day. Every day for the last 2,000 years, Jesus standing by the Father, interceding, praying for you and for me and for all those that God is putting in our paths that we might love them to Christ that we might demonstrate his passion and his compassion, that we might show them that there is a better way. And we, all we got to do, guys and girls, live it. Live it. Why? Jesus is praying. It doesn't get much better than that. Jesus is praying for you. Question is, what are you going to do about it? That's something only you can answer. What are you going to do about his prayers? Would you stand with me this morning? We're going to close. I want you to be able to walk away from here today joyful. I want you to have the full measure of joy that Jesus intended. I want you to walk away from here excited, maybe a little bit humbled, knowing that Jesus is praying for you today. But I also want you to walk away from here transformed by the power of His grace. If you're here today and you know Jesus Christ, you've been serving Him for years and years and years, I want you to walk away from here with just a, a, a fresher sense of His love in your life. If you're here today and maybe you made some kind of commitment to the Lord years ago, but you haven't really been living it, this would be a really good day a really good time to say, Lord, can we start walking together again? And you know what? If you're here today and you've never made a commitment to Jesus Christ, you've never made him your Lord, it's a really great day to change that. And it doesn't take anything more than Jesus. Thank you for dying on that cross. Thank you for raising, rising again. Here I am. Take my life. Forgive me. Make me new. Let's walk together. It's really that simple. And then we do our part. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much 
Lord, I am, I'm, I'm humbled and I'm amazed that on your last night on this earth before you were crucified, you spent time praying for me. Lord, you did what we couldn't do. You were in a place that none of us could go to. Lord, you did it for us. You did it for me, and you prayed for me, and I thank you for that. Lord, you prayed for every one of us. So, Lord, I just this morning, I just pray for each one. As we get ready to say our final amens and walk out of here today, I pray, Lord, for those that, that have known you and have faithfully served you. Father, I pray that you would encourage them and strengthen them and bless them, Lord, that this would be a, a day of realizing once again, the depths of your love and passion. Lord, I pray for those this morning that maybe they had some kind of a relationship with you at some time in the past, but they've let it fall to the wayside. Lord, I pray this day, this moment, they would pick that relationship back up, up, dust it off, and Lord, get into a good relationship with you. Lord, they would communicate with you and you with them. And Jesus, I pray Again, for those that are here today that maybe they've never had a relationship with you. Maybe they've never even heard of you. Lord, I pray that as you touch their heart, you would draw them. Lord, that, that your peace and your passion and your compassion would override any fear and frustration. And God, that you would draw them close and build them up. Lord, let us walk from this place today excited and transformed. And Jesus, I pray as we walk out of here that we would take church with us. We would take church outside the walls to those that desperately need you. We'll be quick to give you the praise and the glory in your precious name. Amen. Thank you for checking out our podcast today. For more information, you can find us on the web at www dot mountainviewchristiancenter dot net